It is my experience that the most mundane moments or the moments when we are least expecting to have great opportunities for ministry often present the greatest opportunities. One example that I read recently in a ministry journal was about a pastor who had always wanted to go to the Super Bowl. Big football fan, like myself. And uh, he one day, out of the blue, received a package in the mail, and it had two incredibly good tickets. And it was an honest, it just said, Pastor, we love you. Here you go. Thank you for not getting me football tickets for Pastoral Appreciation Day, by the way. But he was excited. He was stoked. He said, my wife and I can finally go to the Super Bowl. It even had the, the plane tickets to get them to the, the location and everything. And they got on all their team paraphernalia and painted their faces. They were all excited. They were thinking football, football, football. And they sat there in their seats, really good seats, right on the 50-yard line. And as they were watching the game unfold, the pastor's kind of pastor radar clocked that in front of them, there was a big group over here of people that were having a great time, a big group over here but right in front of them, there was a woman and an empty seat next to her. And, and kind of his pastoral nature kicked in. And during halftime, while his wife was uh, using the restroom, he just leaned down and he said, excuse me, ma'am, I got to ask, how is it that there is an empty seat in such a wonderful spot here at the Super Bowl, which seems like every single seat would certainly be taken? And she looked back and said to him, well, this actually was supposed to be my husband's seat. And he died unexpectedly. And he said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then he said, you know, it seems to me that someone would have wanted to go with you, a close friend, a relative or somebody. And she said, yeah, I thought the same thing. But no, they'd all rather be at the funeral. <laughs> joke grenade. You know, there are times when our priorities become mismanaged, upside down, and we don't recognize it, and we need someone to come in and point that out for us. And in this passage, the prophets had to come and point out to the people of Judah that their priorities had become misaligned. In fact, they were completely upside down. Now, I think most of you have been with us as we've been studying through Ezra, but if you haven't, to catch you up, here's like 100 years in a minute. Early in the 6th century B.C., God told the people of the nation of Judah, your rebellion, you're chasing after other gods, you're oppressing the poor and the disenfranchised and the immigrants and sojourners in your midst has led me to the point where I am going to send you into exile. I am going to send you to a foreign land and there you will remain for 70 years. You've been dragging my name through the mud and I will not have it and so I am going to discipline you. You're supposed to be my light to the nations through whom the whole world will be blessed. But when people look at you, they aren't drawn into the light. They are, in fact, kind of repulsed. And so God used the superpower of Babylon and the king Nebuchadnezzar to come and take them into exile. They also destroyed much of their country, especially Jerusalem, laying it waste and flattening the temple of God. And we've talked about this so often over recent weeks that it almost seems just like, yeah, of course that happened. Big deal. It was a long time ago, and it's part of history. But you've got to put yourself in the shoes of these people and think about how significant this is and, and how heartbreaking it would be and how it would leave an imprint on you. Imagine that a bunch of Americans, a big, big group of people chosen out of the general populace, had been grabbed in the 40s and relocated forcibly to Nazi Germany. And then 70 years later, in like 2013 or something, would have been allowed to go back. And when they got back, they would have found that much of the place had been laid waste, that Washington, D.C. was burned to the ground, the White House was crushed, the Capitol building was crushed. Now, this would be a horrifying ordeal, and it would be a big job to go back and say, I guess we have to start rebuilding in some way. But it would be even more difficult if... These were not just political and geographic and national symbols, but actually our spiritual identity were tied up in them, as is the case here. You see, when they had laid waste to Jerusalem and crushed the temple, they crushed something that was at the very heart of the identity of the people of God. It was the center of their relationship with him. It was the center of his presence in their midst. But of course, you know the rest of the story that after some decades, a bigger superpower, Persia, King Cyrus the Great, took over Babylon. 
conquered it. And they had a different philosophy. Rather than dragging people away from their homes and saying, forget who you are and just be one of us, they said, no, go on home, serve your gods, be fruitful, and pay us lots of taxes. And so Cyrus issued a decree that they could return and rebuild their temple. And Zerubbabel, most fun name in the world to pronounce, Zerubbabel had gone back with Joshua and 50,000, 40 to 50,000 other people to do this job. And of course, we saw in chapter 3 that there was great initial excitement. Right when they got there, they rebuilt the, the altar and started offering daily sacrifices to the Lord. And then within just a few months, that next spring, they laid the foundation for the temple and it was looking good. People were shouting so loud on the Temple Mount that it could be heard from miles away. But then the Samaritans started in with their opposition. Now, remember in the New Testament, the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. That didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of these initial interactions. They used a combination of diplomatic whining toward Persia, lying about Israel, and what we might even call terrorism eventually of ambushes and attacking people to try to scare them into ceasing work on their temple and later ceasing work on their wall, the defensive wall around the city. And so what happened is that the people slowly stopped working on it and eventually got used to the idea of worshiping their God in the midst of a pile of rubble rather than in a majestic and beautiful temple as they used to. Then, 16 years later, we read that God spoke to the people through his prophets and called them to begin building again. They were in a rut. Their priorities had turned upside down, and God is going to come in using his prophets, as he often does, to be kind of the elbow in the ribs of his people. We see this transition between chapter 4 and chapter 5 introducing us to the, the, the work that's going to begin again. Uh, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Now when we think of the Bible, we often think, oh yeah, of course there were prophets, prophets all over the place. But at this point, recognize this was an unusual occurrence. That, that this was something that almost never happened, and it hadn't happened since they got back into Israel. They, they were there, but there wasn't a lot of prophecy happening. They weren't hearing from God. Before the exile in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you had, you know, Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. In the exile, there was Daniel and and different people, Ezekiel and, and that sort of thing. But the glory of all these kingdoms was behind them now and they're in the midst of this pile of rubble that had been the temple and they are in the ruins spiritually as well. And so this comes as a much needed jumpstart, kind of defibrillator paddles for the people of God. The first prophet that's mentioned here is Haggai. Aside, I love that there is a guy in the Old Testament named Haman and another one named Haggai, but that's beside the point. I mean, we don't know much about him other than that name, which means my feast or my festival, probably born on a, a feast day. But other than that, we only know that he seems to be quite old when he comes in. Chapter 2 implies that he is one of those men who had seen the former temple in its glory before it was destroyed, which would make him like 80-something at this point. And he's still not retired. He's still working hard. And that may be why his ministry is so short and to the point He's basically saying, I'm here to bring you a few oracles from God. I don't have time to beat around the bush. These are short and sweet and punchy. And if you want to read them, the entire book of Haggai gives you the oracles that are brought to the people. The book of Ezra just tells us that they prophesied. And then the books of Haggai and Zechariah give us the content of those prophecies. There's nothing real poetic in Haggai. No wheels within wheels or beasts with mismatched heads or even, you know, flying women with baskets like you read about in Zechariah. No, it is straightforward stuff. God gave him a direct, specific message for these people, and they were ready to receive it at this time. Another unusual thing, these prophets are not given a difficult task of speaking to a horribly obstinate, rebellious people who were turning their backs on God, and God was on the verge of turning his back on them as well. This is the faithful remnant of Israel. The Israel within Israel, we might say. 
These are the people who are most committed. They're the right people in the right place for the right reason. The right people, meaning that most of those who are in the line of Judah remained in Babylon. They said, yeah, we're happy you're going back. We support you. Here's some money. Here's some supplies. Go do your thing. But we're not moving. But these are the folks who actually undertook this difficult, dangerous travel back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. They're in the right place. They're not in Babylon. They're not in Susa, the capital of Persia. They're not somewhere far away from where God told them to be in the land that he promised them. They are in Jerusalem, which is the right place because in the old covenant, the kingdom of God did have a geographic center and that was Jerusalem. They're there despite the hardship, despite the danger. And they're there for the right reasons. They're motivated by zeal for God's house, just like Jesus was when he cleansed the temple. They want to see it built again. That's why they uprooted their lives and moved them hundreds of miles. They hadn't made in Babylon. Recognize this. They were in exile, but they weren't slaves like they had been in Egypt. We have to remind ourselves of that sometimes. They weren't working in the mines or, or sweating away making bricks. No, they were making a living, and they were doing all right. In fact, many of them had become very rich in Babylon. They were living what St. Athanasius called La Vida Loca. Just checking if you're still with me. And yet, they are in need of rebuke because their priorities slowly over time have shifted. And now they are in rebellion without having decided on rebellion. And so perhaps the central application here is to watch out for the cooling of your heart. Be careful because one day your heart might be on fire for Jesus and it can very, very quickly become tepid if you don't fan the flames and stoke the fire and pray for the Spirit of God to continue to keep you on fire. Our hearts tend to be like broccoli. Have you ever noticed this? If you love broccoli or hate it, I love it, but I've noticed that no matter how you heat it, you microwave it in one of those bags, you steam it, you boil it, whatever you do, you bake it. By the time you've got it on the plate and you sit down and you get around to trying to eat it, it's cold. It's problematic. If somebody needs to invent like a, a broccoli pod of some kind that keeps it warm, well, our hearts are just like that. The 70 years of exile were over and God had given them this great gift of return and this great task, but they'd squandered the mission so far. They'd squandered the materials and the passion and the energy and had faded. It cooled like broccoli fresh out of the microwave. As far as the urgent need to rebuild the temple, which obviously they had all felt because it compelled them to this difficult journey and, and committing themselves to this difficult task, they were more or less over it. And this happens easily with human beings, right? We all get worked up about some cause or something, and then before long, we're on to something else. Remember in 2012, everybody everywhere was worried about child soldiers in Africa. It was all over the place. And now there are still child soldiers in Africa 10 years later, but I don't hear it talked about much. We've moved on to a different thing. We'll get bored with the different thing and move on and move on and move on. Well, these people had done just that. It wasn't a decision. It was just entropy. It, it was how friction, if you slide something, even along ice, eventually will cause it to slow. Unless somebody comes along with a hockey stick and whacks it again, it will come to a stop. They didn't turn to idols. And this had never been the only way that God's people turned away. Yes, there have been times when they turned and worshipped the Baals, when they had gone after other gods, but even when they had just been uh, rescued from Egypt and they were in the midst of wandering in the, in the desert, what are they doing? They're, they're worshipping what they had left. They're, they're thinking about going back to Egypt because they've idealized it. This happens also, by the way, in Ezra. People who see the new temple foundation and start to weep because they remember the good old days. They've got good old days syndrome, G-O-D-S. That's a fitting acronym, right? That's idolatry. Those are the gods, the good old days. Well, a lot of that was going on. Thinking back, thinking back to Egypt. Well, this is way more appealing, thinking back to Babylon. They're thinking back to the comforts they had. They're thinking back to the safety they had. They're thinking back to the, the life that they were living, which was really a very good life. And slowly, comfort becomes, in essence, their idol, their God. They were still God's people 
in God's place, but their zeal for doing God's work for God's reasons was waning fast. Reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite movies, which is the uh, Nativity Story. It came out, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And the three wise men, and yeah, I know there probably weren't three, but they're, they're Melchior, Casper, and Belshazzar in the movie. Uh, they're, they're trying to convince the third guy to go. And he says, but what about my cushions? What about my nuts? What about my dates? I need these things. And they say, you can bring them with you. And, and I think about that sort of mentality. I got to be able to bring my comforts with me if I'm going to follow. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Take up your cross lay down your life, and follow me. And the people here had slowly gone from that mindset to uh, maybe think I need my, my cushions, my comforts, and all the rest more than I need God's presence. So Haggai comes roaring onto the scene to, to goose them a little bit, much like we see Jesus doing in Revelation 3, when he says to the church in Laodicea, you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I would rather that you are hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm, I am going to, King James, spew you out of my mouth. S-P-U-E. Spew you out. I'm going to spit you out because you are neither hot nor cold. For that reason, I'm assuming Jesus was not a fan of broccoli. But he says to them, you have to consider what you're going to be. Decide this day, like Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve the gods from back in Egypt? You're going to serve those pagan gods beyond the river? You choose. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. At the end of the day, it indeed was idolatry. These upside-down priorities, putting created things before the Creator, and according to Romans, that is the very definition of idolatry. I want to just go ahead and flip over to Haggai if you're in Ezra. We're going to look at Haggai chapter 1. We're going to look at the first few verses as Haggai comes in to get the people motivated to resume the work that they had slowly let grind to a halt. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while well, this house lies in ruins? So he comes in, he says, first of all, you got lazy. Then you started to make excuses, which is what humans tend to do. And you decided that this was the talking point. Guys, that time is not right. It's just not, it's not time. We, not that we, we don't want to do it. Not that we don't want to build it. Not, we'll never do it. Not, we don't care about it. Just, the timing's off. Not yet. Not now. We'll do it later. Now, maybe they weren't saying these things out loud. God is the origin of this oracle, and he reads the hearts of men, and so he knows their motives of each and every man and woman in Judah, all of them who had returned. But what he's describing is spiritual procrastination. This is one of Satan's favorite tactics. To come in and say, oh yeah, we, we're all in favor of all this stuff, uh, of, of witnessing to the lost, of serving God, of feeding and clothing the needy. We're all in favor of uh, in serious, intense reading of Scripture daily, not once in a while, of prayer, praying without ceasing, starting every day with prayer to God. It's all really good, but not yet. Come on. You've got a lot going on right now. This is, the, you know, this king, he's not the king that, that really supported us originally, and so we'd better hold off and see how things shake out. We've got these Samaritans around us who are all up in arms and, and angry. Why don't we wait till they calm down? Later we'll rebuild. It's bad economic times. We'll wait for it all to blow over, and then it will be time. This is very easy to do, and it's very tempting. It's Inflation goes nuts. It could be tempting to do this today. Oh, now is not really the time to fund a particular mission or to, to truly uh, give in to uh, a desire that, that God might be putting on our heart to, to reach out to somebody and, and to bring the gospel to bear and to, to put our money where our mouth is or even to give a lot of time to something. i got to put in extra hours right now. You don't understand. 
God didn't buy it in 520 BC. I don't think he's buying it now because he sees our priorities. Often when it seems like the times is, are worst from the human point of view, the times are best from God's perspective. Our church is named after the first foreign missionaries from America, Adoniram and Ann Judson, who went with three others overseas, and they wound up in Burma and brought the gospel there. Some of the other missionaries who went with them wound up in India and other places in the East. And when they started getting all the support together, a lot of people said, it's not a good time for you to go. It was 1812. War was brewing. You remember what war? The creatively named War of 1812. In fact, they had to get on a ship and go as fast as they could, and, and they were not even 100% ready to go, but they knew that the naval blockade was coming, and if they didn't leave now, they would never be able to leave, or at least it would be years, and, and it was up in the air whether or not they'd be able to go out about this mission. And so they just, they just went. They said, now is the time. Not, it is not yet time. It is not time. Now is the time. Now is the time that we have. We don't have tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. Let's do it right now. Let's hurry up before things get worse. Let's put God's plan that he's laid on our hearts into action. And I'm very glad they didn't say it's not yet time. And I'll tell you what, the bunch of people at Lansing Chin Baptist Church are even gladder. The jacket that Lisa has on today, it's a chin jacket. If you weren't here uh, a few years ago, there, there was a church that met here. They started as a tiny little group uh, of people from Burma, and then they outgrew this place. They wound up in uh, Valley Farms, and they're outgrowing that place, and now they're looking for yet a bigger place to worship. The gospel came, and they, they sowed the seeds, and God caused them to flourish. Thank God they didn't say, oh, it's a bad time right now. But then Haggai the prophet asks a question. If it's not yet time to build the house of God, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins to dwell in your paneled houses now if you were around in the 70s and 80s you know a lot of houses were paneled houses i lived in the basement growing up and it was that like fake wood paneling in my bedroom that everybody had the exact same print of the exact same like seven boards now in our basement we've got knotty pine paneling very standard for a while there I have never heard anyone say, okay, Mr. Moneybags, with your paneled basement. That's just not a thing. But this is a very different kind of paneled house. These homes were paneled on the walls and ceilings with cedar. And it was a sign of prosperity in a land where wood was scarce. The people were spending freely on their own homes while neglecting the rebuilding of the temple, which was the very reason that they had come back to the promised land. Not only did God lead them back for that reason, but that's why the king, Cyrus, had allowed them to return and funded their return. Now, paneled houses were not way over the top. I would liken it perhaps to somebody putting in granite countertops in their kitchen. It's something that you can do if you put your mind to it, and most people would have to save up a little bit. It's a home improvement is what it is. But God is pointing out how they're improving their homes well, his home is literally a pile of stones. Because in the Old Covenant, God dwelt in the holy place in the temple. And so we see him calling them to account. And then he says to them, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Consider your ways. Literally, that means set your heart upon your ways. Put that, that in your heart, shake it around, think on it. Roll these things around in your mind. Take an inventory of your life. He goes on, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says that again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Each of you busies himself. That literally is, each of you is running to. That's, it's an idiom in Hebrew. Running to his own house. Running 
That would have been something unusual to literally do in that culture. Grown men would not be seen running. It was undignified. But you're, you're willing to do it. You're willing to run to your house to take care of it, to work on it, to build it up, to establish yourself further. You brought it home. You're, you're, you're running to your house with all of these things that you have earned, that you've poured your life into, like the rich fool who says, I'm going to have to build new barns to hold all this stuff that I have. And God says to him that very night, you fool, your life is required of you this night. Taxes come. Take a bunch of it away after you've saved. Inflation makes it worth less than it was when you stockpiled it. And now you find what's going on. It's like we're putting these things in our purse and there's a hole in the bottom and they're coming out. And God says, you want to know who that is? It's me. I'm blowing it all away. You're, you're passionate about your own lives. You're putting all of your priority into your own situation. You're not looking to the kingdom of God. You fool. This very night, your life might be required of you. Then what will come of all of your great riches? Those are the words that Jesus gives us. God spoke them to the rich fool. So there's a disconnect here. I only noticed this maybe the second or third time I read through the book of Haggai. I remember going, wait a minute. How are they doing all these home improvements if they have almost nothing? If when they bring home a bunch of money, it disappears. They're still saying, well, what I have left I'm going to make sure that I... Well, maybe that's not the case. Here's the question. The awkward question people aren't asking sometimes. Where did they get the cedar to panel their houses? It was not readily available. It was a bit of a luxury. And I think the answer probably lies earlier in the book of Ezra when they got back to the land and they said, let's build this temple. And they reached out to Lebanon and imported a whole bunch of cedar. And there it sat, a stockpile. And people from time to time said, well, I could, we're not using this, take a little bit home, take a little more of it home, and I'm going to use it to panel my own house. No one's using it right now. Zerubbabel and Joshua had purchased this stuff for one purpose, and when you think about the possibility that this might be the very wood that is paneling the houses of these people who are not rebuilding the temple of God, it gives a whole new meaning to that last prophet who comes after Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi, when he asks, would man rob God? This is the very opposite attitude of King David, who said, how can I live in a cedar palace while God dwells in a tent? At least God had a tent then. He only has a pile of rubble now. And yet, the people of Judah slowly had become comfortable with the idea of building up their mini mansions from what rightfully belonged to God. And they've gotten very used to the notion of relegating him to somewhere near the bottom of their list of priorities. It's not... They're not psyched about it, but what are you going to do? This all was predicted back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. He says, this is what will happen if you turn away from me. You shall build a house, but not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in a little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. And then that happened, and they've just gotten back from that captivity and are starting to slide slowly into the very same cycle. This is what we see again and again in Scripture in the book of Judges, over and over again, the cycle of disobedience. God gives them over to a foreign power. They cry out for deliverance. He raises up a judge. They're saved and rinse and repeat. The same thing is happening in the New Testament. And this is what Paul is rebuking people for harshly. When he says, what then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? God forbid. How do, you, how do you get into a cycle like this where you're comfortable saying, I'll sin. Later on, I can just confess. I remember when I was growing up, this was the stereotype uh, of Roman Catholics in my town. It was a Polish Baptist town. Uh, ba Polish Baptist? That's a new one. Polish Catholic town. Uh, Bay City, Michigan. And, and I remember a lot of evangelicals Grumbling and grousing, oh, these, these guys, they, they just sin, 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 and then they just go into the confessional and say a few words, and then they say a few Hail Marys, and they're all set. Well, remove the Hail Marys from the equation, and that's how a lot of evangelicals view their lives. Oh, we really believe in grace, so much so that we will turn it into license, the exact thing that St. Peter warns us against doing, because it's blasphemous. I'll sin, 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 I know later he'll forgive me. And sins are not just sins of 
commission, things we do, but here, a sin of omission, what they're failing to do. I can repent of that as well, and I know that God will understand. If that's what grace means to us, we have cheapened God's grace. What's the big deal, though? It's not like we're talking about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. It's building a building. And of course, in the New Covenant, we de-emphasize the building. We say the church is the people. And yes, Judah was the people as well. But remember that in the Old Covenant, this is where God dwelt. In 1 Kings 8, they talk about wherever you are in the world, facing toward that temple, when you pray. But there is no temple to face toward. And it's not just erecting a building which is at stake, but salvation history itself. If they don't rebuild the temple, the Messiah can't come and fulfill a bunch of prophecies. The prophecy of entering into it. The prophecy of even being able to say, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. There's a lot of bigger things at play here. Remember, everything before the cross in the Bible points forward to the cross. Everything after the cross in the Bible points back to the cross. And so there is a lot at stake here. Here's Haggai with a message that's not overly harsh, but it's a wake-up call. And we have then what is very rare, especially in the Old Testament prophets. One very brief message causes the people to repent and listen and obey and respond wholeheartedly. And you say, Pastor, it's because it was a very brief message, right? But consider the other options, the other occurrences. Nineveh, right? Jonah, go and and tell these people that they need to repent, and he will not go. He's going to go the opposite direction. He's going to run away from God. Or think about when Jeremiah and Micaiah and other Old Testament prophets bring the word. It's like they're talking to a brick wall. Not so here. Starting in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. What happened here is the miracle that happens in people's hearts when God takes a heart of stone and turns it to the heart of flesh. Changing hearts, and it always means then that lives will change as well. And their priorities are turned back the right way. Instead of honoring themselves, they begin to honor God. Instead of fearing the Samaritans around them, they begin fearing God once again. They put first things first. It's like when you're getting dressed. Sometimes when I get dressed, I'm not all the way awake, and I'll start buttoning my shirt, and I won't get the top button on the right button. And you you get to the bottom, and you go, whoa. And you've messed the whole thing up. Once you mess up that top button, you can't fix it. There's there's no way. you got to start over all over again. Well, the top button in life is to love God, according to Jesus. The second button is to love others as you love yourself. Do that, and it's much more likely that the rest of it will fall into place. But the moment we stop loving God and start loving ourselves, we're going to get all the rest of the buttons messed up as well. In Ezra 5.11, we read, this was their reply to us. They're they're trying to tattle. It's very funny to me. Once the, the thing starts being built again, here come the Samaritans, and they say, who are you? What are your names? Who told you you can do this? We want a list. We're going, to send, we're going to send the list to the king. What are our names? Who are we? We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's, they've remembered who they are. Their priorities now match their identity. And they know that this is who they're meant to be and this is what they're meant to do and they're not going to stop. They've embraced their place in redemptive history and they've responded with obedience. If you look at Jeremiah 7, look at the complete opposite response. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? You could take that very text and apply it to the church today. Are you going to come to the altar and eat my flesh and drink my blood 
Say, oh, we're delivered, knowing that you're going to turn and go back into the very sin that you were in today? Or are you going to say, Lord, continue to take my priorities and make them right, to wash my heart and, and purge the old fleshly desires and replace them with good, righteous desires and appetites? Three weeks after this prophecy is uttered, they're already building. This is one thing I love about Haggai. He gives us all the dates exactly. August 30, 520 B.C. is when Haggai comes in with this text. We, we can know that. It's, it's wild. September 21, they are already building, and I don't think it took them a few weeks to think it through. Well, give us three weeks and we'll decide. No, I think they immediately started working, but they had to get some more supplies and organize and prepare. And as soon as they could, they are building again. It is a big job they're undertaking. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and his associates came to them and spoke to them. Who are you to decree that this building should, should be finished and this structure should be built? And also asked, what are your names, etc. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This, I think, is a, a beautiful detail in this story. They've come to a halt just by consistently being harassed and threatened, and discouraged, and they're like, oh, forget it, it's not worth it. But once they get this thing going again, once they push start this locomotive, nothing's going to stop it. Oh, we're going to write a letter to the king. We're not stopping. Oh, well, what is the king going to say? We'll find out, but we're not stopping. And they did not force them to stop, which they probably would have been able to do if they put their mind to it. Why? Because the eye of their God was on them. There may be a little kind of play on words here, as well, it's well known to historians that in order to keep a firm grip on a sprawling, growing empire, that the Persian kings developed an elaborate system of spies and informers operating outside of the usual structure and hierarchy of their government, reporting directly to the king. And they had great influence over the course of events, and they were known as the king's eye. The king's eye was always on them. Maybe these are some of the people who the Samaritans were paying off in the last chapter. But once we read that the eye of Yahweh was upon them, suddenly we've ratcheted things up to the next level. Yeah, the king's eye might be around here, but God's eye is on us. Psalm 33, 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hold in his steadfast love. And they begin what is an enormous job with every intent of not stopping until it is done. There's a big job for us to carry out as well, a lot bigger than building an earthly temple. We are building a heavenly temple. We are building a temple for God that is going to span the entire earth. Every inch of this planet is part of his domain. There is no geographic center. Everywhere you go, Jesus says, that is mine. Now, if we turn away from it, we slowly cool to this idea that we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We need to be the heralds and stewards of Jesus. We need to be the mouthpiece of the gospel. I think we may find that we're planting much, working and working. And yet, at the end of the day, as the old Dutch expression goes, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. We are looking to build a temple. Christ fulfilled that physical temple. The body of Christ is now the spiritual temple. And whenever we put that off in favor of our own comforts and our own, our own honor and our own personhood and success, the little temples to ourselves that we build, we're doing exactly what they were doing back in Ezra chapter 5 when Haggai had to come in and bring them this wake-up call. I think it's good to ask ourselves every so often, what am I doing to extend the kingdom of God? What am I doing to bring glory to my God where God has placed me, in my context, not only in the local church, but in the places where the church can't get, where God has given me access. What am I doing to extend his reach, to bring glory to his name? Are we giving in? Have we been slowed to a halt by spiritual procrastination? I'm in favor of all of it. When I hear preaching, when I read the Bible, all that, I think, yes, that's all good, but now is not the time. Not just yet. The political climate, it's a little bit iffy. Culture right now is weird about making 
you know, exclusive claims of spiritual truth. I'm worried about these people exposing us. What if I get canceled or doxxed or something? We're unpopular in the media right now as Christians. It's bad economic times. Maybe wait that out. Maybe just wait for all of this to blow over, and then I am on board. Or we might be thinking, you know, I've got to get myself established. After I get that degree, okay, then I'm really going to be sold for Jesus. I'm going to be out there on fire, and everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, it's that Jesus guy. It's that lady who never shuts up about Jesus, but for now, mm. or after I raise my kids to a certain point, then I'll have the time. Or I buy that house that I've wanted. Then I'll have the time. Or uh, after I've lived, right? i got to go out and live a little. And then I'll say, okay, God, now I'm done with that. Now I have nothing but time for you. Nothing but energy for you. Nothing but an appetite for you. Magically, it's going to happen if we feed the flesh? I don't think so. Reminds me of St. Augustine's prayer. As a young man before he came to faith, Lord, give me chastity but not yet. Lord, bring an end to my lust, but not yet. In his confessions, he confesses to actually praying that prayer. Not with his life, but with his words. Lord, I do want to follow you, just not yet. Now, we've got to be careful, of course, about applying this to our world and our church today because there's a different kind of covenant between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant was rooted in a particular place with a particular people, and it was very physical in nature. The blessings and the curses were physical in nature. That's not so much the case anymore. If there's a drought somewhere or a famine or a hurricane, and people come out of the woodwork on TV to say, you see, God's angry with those people. Remember, this is not the kind of covenant we have today. Material blessings and curses seem to come on everyone. Jesus says God causes the rain to fall on the just and unjust alike. The new covenant is not limited by geography or ethnicity or, or anything like that. It's not temporary. It's eternal. But perhaps this is fulfilled in our lives even when God doesn't strike down our efforts. You see people who are able to take huge amounts of money home and have large levels of fame and lots of followers, and yet they are empty. They're not satisfied. It's like all that fame and all that money and all that success and all the stuff the world chases after is going into a purse with holes in the bottom. Still, they want more because what they have is not enough. When we shuffle our feet to glorify God, it doesn't matter how much we run or hustle in other areas, we will never be satisfied. But I would say don't count out the physical entirely either. Because in the book of Revelation, remember there are these trumpet judgments. And the trumpet is meant to wake you up, to be a call to action. Whoa, okay, something's got to happen. The trumpet, the shofar blown in the Old Testament, gathers the people together for a task. And the trumpet judgments, as they are laid out in the book of Revelation, seem to come in the, the form of maybe what we might call natural disasters or acts of God. Difficult things that happen in the world to wake people up and make them go, whoa, wait a minute. Let me take a look at my priorities. Never miss an opportunity to reassess your priorities and make sure that they are in line with what God would have them be. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And what we see happening here in Haggai is revival. And it doesn't start with someone saying, well, obviously this kind of temple no longer works. That's in the past. It's just, it's not happening. Let's recast the vision and reinvent all this stuff. Now, it starts with the leaders who are named Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of David and an ancestor of Jesus. Everything before the cross points forward to it. Everything after points back to it. And Joshua, who's in the line of Aaron. These, these guys are the same, the same line as Moses and Aaron. This is the same task that they've been given. They're called to come and worship and follow what has already been written down, to carry out the same task because it is undone. They don't reinvent it. They repent and return. Haggai and Zechariah both prophesied here. We're not going to look at Zechariah's prophecies. They're, they're largely the same thing. But what we see is that Haggai was the old guy. He'd seen the temple. He starts the ball rolling. Then he hands it off to young, upstart, handsome. I assume he's handsome. His name is Zach. Uh, inspiring prophet, Zechariah, who takes over and he kind of launches him like a more established band launches a new band. But neither of them 
call the people to reinvent. Rather, go back to the word of God as it is already revealed. He calls them to repent, not reinvent. Repentance, of course, starts with a change of heart, a change of mind. That's what the New Testament word in the Greek metanoia means. But it also then leads to a change of direction. That's what the Old Testament Hebrew word shuv means. Turning back, turning around, a change in direction, a change in life. The evidence of someone being a believer. 500 years later, the great, 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 great grandchildren of these folks, the Pharisees and Sadducees, whom Jesus rebukes, will have the opposite thing going on. They have all the outward stuff in place. They have a big, beautiful, gold-covered temple. They have all the, the mint, dill, and cumin on their windowsills, perfectly tithed. Everything looks good from the outside. But Jesus is going to look at them and say, your, your heart is full of dead men's bones. You have to have the inside, the new heart given by Jesus, and the outside, the fruit that is born of it. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. And so if someone lives a life where they say, I'm grieved by my sin, but I go on sinning, I'm grieved by my lack of obedience, my upside-down priorities, and yet I continually say, now is not quite yet the time for me to get serious about my faith, it may be an appropriate thing for them to stop and ask, inside is my heart new? Have I been born again? Have I buttoned the top button correctly? Because I look down and I've got a real mess here. He says, I am with you. The Lord with us. God with us. Emmanuel. This was the prophecy that was brought to King Ahaz. And Ahaz looked at it and said, no thanks. I don't want it. I'm not going to ask for that. I don't want that. That's not, that's not my thing. Well, he's coming anyway. Emmanuel, God with us. And now he is with us. Will we remember him or will we let our hearts slowly cool? Hearing God's word proclaimed is how our hearts can be rekindled. Reading God's word, turning to him in prayer and saying, Lord, don't let me just read these words as words, but supernaturally impress them on my heart and use them to fan the flames and stoke the fire of my love for you and my zeal for your kingdom is how these things don't slowly, by entropy, turn into nothing, turn into dry, empty coals, skid to a halt. Throughout the Old Testament, God reminds the people what he's done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. After this, he's going to start saying to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of exile. He reminds them of the great things he has done for them. Because if he does not, their zeal will cool. They've lived through it, but their hearts turn to what they thought they deserved. What the flesh desired. In the same way, just 20 years earlier, it looked like they would never be leaving Babylon. God had delivered them with all that help. They'd been funded by the Persian Empire but this great act of deliverance is fading into the background and they're focusing on other things. We're coming up on Reformation Day. And on Reformation Day, we think about Martin Luther, how he focused on the gospel, preached the gospel. In fact, he preached it so much that someone from his congregation said, Brother Luther, why do you preach that same gospel every week? And he said, because every week you forget. We forget. And the battle cry of the Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming. I know a lot of people who are very into the Reformation, but it's over. It's in the past. It's a thing to kind of go, okay, well, I'm glad that happened, and now I can just go back to whatever I'm focusing on inwardly, in my own life, for my own benefit, for my own glory. Always reforming. We cannot afford to be over it when it comes to the bring, bringing of the gospel to the world, to building the kingdom here. We can't get used to worshiping in the midst of a pile of rubble, which is our heart, our spiritual situation, saying to ourselves, eh, the time has not yet come. Later, I'll deal with that. Later won't come. Young people in youth group, you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Do you live like you believe in Jesus? Meaning, are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Are you bringing the gospel to bear in your life? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'll, I'll get into that later, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just a teenager right now. Let me be a teenager. I'm just a college student right now. I'm overwhelmed. I got all these classes and I'm working. Listen, I'm a young adult. I'm newly married. I don't have time for that stuff. 
my kids are, they're teenagers. I'm, I'm a taxi service. Where am I going to find people to bring the gospel to or find even a moment to do that? Hey, I'm retired. I think I've earned a little rest right now. The time has not yet come. The time is not right. Well, the time was September 21, 520 B.C., when the people finally heard this message and said, you know what, we've got to repent. We've got to turn these priorities back to the way God would have them be. And we've got to start building once again because we have slowed to a crawl, to a stop. And perhaps for some of us, it will be October 16, 2022, when we say, I, I maybe need to ask God to readjust my priorities as well. Maybe it's going to be a violent process and it's going to be uncomfortable. Maybe it's going to be a slow process and I'm going to find him bringing me further and further into his presence and into obedience with him. But I am going to submit myself to his will and ask him wherever I may have cooled that he will cause me to come back to life. Wherever I may find my, my lukewarm spirituality, my broccoli spirituality, that he is going to bring it back to the heat that he is going to fan the flame of discipleship, that we would then glorify him in his house. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who came in when building had crawled to a halt. We pray, Lord, that you would, through your spirit, not through a prophet, but directly in each of us and in all of us, when we need it, bring this same message to bear on us. Lord, that we would hear your voice calling us not to look to our own comforts, our own glory, our own standing primarily, but to build the kingdom of God, to turn our attention toward lifting you up. It's just as the only reason these people were allowed to return to the promised land was to rebuild the temple, the only reason we are here is to lift up your name. And Lord, when we are distracted by all the other stuff of life, when we find ourselves shuffling to God's house while running to other things, we pray, Lord, that you would correct us, convict us, rebuke us, and gently draw us back to yourself. Lord, we confess that often we will miss church for weeks at a time. We'll find ourselves shuffling and saying, oh, we'll be late, we won't come this week. And then Monday afternoon, we hit that tea time. Or Wednesday night, we hit that guy's night or girl's night out or whatever the case it is. And we, we reveal what our priorities are. Lord, we pray that you would bring our priorities back into line with your own. By your spirit, you would just push out those, those carnal desires and appetites. And instead, Lord, replace them with the expulsive power of a new affection. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.